I love that story, and I love it because it began with somebody here making a sacrifice so that some lady that they'll probably never meet this side of heaven in India could survive and provide for her family. You know, the word sacrifice is one of those words that creates mental images whenever I hear the word, probably does for you as well. Um, when I hear the word sacrifice, I think of blood-soaked beaches at Normandy on D-Day. I, I think of a mother who donates a kidney so that her child gets a second chance at life. I think of a father who works one full-time job and two part-time jobs to provide enough so that his kids can go to college and get a good education. There's something noble and inspirational about sacrifice. And there is no more radical, there is no greater sacrifice than that which was accomplished in the life of Jesus Christ at the end of his earthly ministry. Do you realize that more biblical text is devoted to this one week than any other single week in all of human history? And this week begins with what we're celebrating today, Palm Sunday. And it culminates, the week does, culminates with the death and the burial of Jesus Christ. It's like two contrasting events. They bookend the week. They, they, they highlight his triumph and, as well as his tragedy. They, they highlight his entry as well as his exit, his grand coronation and his graphic crucifixion. And so you think, well, these are about as opposite as you could get. Well, it's really interesting that for all of their oppositeness, there is a parallel to these events of the week. In some unique ways, they, they just flow through the same line. They both occur on hilltops. Jesus rides up the hill into Jerusalem. Jerusalem sits on a hill, and at the end of the week, he is crucified on the hilltop that is called Golgotha. Both events, uh, you know, involve cheering crowds, on Sunday, they're cheering him as king. On the following Friday, they're shouting for his crucifixion. Both events echoed a royal declaration. He was hailed as the coming king. And Pilate put a placard over his head on the cross that simply read, King of the Jews. Both events resulted in sorrow. Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem, and Peter wept over his own denial that he even knew Jesus himself. Both events culminate with calamity in the temple. After Jesus had come into the city of Jerusalem, he cleanses the temple and drives out the crooks and the money changers. And on Friday after his death, the curtain in the temple is torn from top to bottom. Both events confused the disciples. They were surprised and, and, and confused. They, they weren't expecting the crowd to treat Jesus like that on Sunday, and they certainly weren't expecting the trial and the crucifixion at the end of the week. They are dumbfounded all week. So why would the gospel writers devote so much written material to this one seven-day period? I, I think John answers that question best. In John chapter 20, this is what we read. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. When you fan through the pages of Scripture from the beginning to the end, those stories point us to God's story in Jesus Christ. 
Since the Garden of Eden, humanity had been waiting for the ancient snake to get his due. We are introduced first to the concept of grace when it was extended to Noah and his family. We caught a glimpse of God's forgiveness when Joseph embraced his brothers 20 years after they sold him into slavery. We cheer about the plagues that fell upon Egypt, defeating their empty idols and exalting God as supreme. We marvel at the picture of a new start as the Israelites go through the Red Sea on dry land with walls of water on either side. We see in the book of Judges how the sinfulness of God's people reflects our own sinful nature. We fell in love with the story of Ruth and Boaz, realizing that God is our Redeemer, just as Boaz was Ruth's. We anguish with David in his sin and recognize our own deep need for repentance. The broken kingdom reminds us of our broken lives. The rebuilt walls of Jerusalem under the direction of Nehemiah reminds us that God's work of restoration is at work in each of us. Esther's resolve compels us to make the most of every moment because we have been called to such a time as this. But of all of the stories in the Bible, one story prepares us for this week better than any other. It is found in the book of Genesis. It is the story of Abraham and Isaac as Abraham takes his only son on a three-day journey to the hills of, of Moriah on which he is going to sacrifice his son as an offering to God at God's request. Do you see the picture? A father willing to give all. A son bearing the instrument of his death on his own back and it took place on the very hill that would later become the site of the temple in Jerusalem, or maybe even the very hilltop that was called Golgotha. Who can forget the ram that was caught in the bushes that spared the life of Isaac as God said, Abraham, now I know the extent of your faith. And who can forget the joy as father and son came down the hill and re-entered their lives at home. You see, in the book of Genesis it was the sacrifice and then the triumphal reentry. In the Gospels, it is the triumphal entry and then the sacrifice. John is right. All these things are written so that we might believe and in believing have faith and life and hope. So here is Palm Sunday's account according to Luke. In Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 28, it says, After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And as he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Just tell him, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying that colt? And they replied, The Lord needs it. And they brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. <laughs> A donkey's colt. A colt! And it wasn't even his own. It was a borrowed donkey. Now, that shouldn't surprise any of us. 
Before it was a borrowed donkey, it was a borrowed room at the house of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus when Jesus needed to be refreshed. And before that, it was a borrowed boat that he used as a pulpit. And before that, it was a borrowed lunch from a little boy from which he fed 5,000 people. And before that, it was a borrowed manger for him to sleep in when he was an infant. And at the end of the week, it would be a borrowed tomb where he would be buried. Is it not incredible in your mind that the God of the ages that Jesus Christ, through whom all things came into being in this world, owned nothing in this world in his earthly ministry except for a seamless robe that, by the way, would belong to a soldier with the highest bid at the foot of the cross come Friday. A donkey. Why not a white stallion? Now, that I could see. I mean, wouldn't he look kingly riding into Jerusalem on a white stallion? Well, there are two answers for that. First of all, prophecy said something otherwise. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, prophesied, written hundreds of years before the coming of Christ. Zechariah said this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle, and riding on a, a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Yeah, this is the way the Messiah would come riding on a donkey. But, but the second reason is even more insightful. The second reason is that a donkey symbolized peace. <laughs> I got to tell you, when I look in the face of a donkey, peace is not the first word that comes to my mind. I don't, I don't know what you think, but it's not peace. I'll tell you that. But, but in this day and time, there was something in the minds of the people that associated peace and humility with a donkey. If he'd have come riding a war horse, that would have been aggression. But here he comes, up that hill that leads into the city of Jerusalem, riding this lowly donkey, and the scene of that such humility for the God of the ages stirs the hearts of the people, and they begin to cut the palm branches out of the trees and lay them in the road just as they would for a conquering king coming home. And, and if they didn't have palm branches, they took their cloaks off their back and they spread them in the road so that it was paved all the way into the city of Jerusalem. And Luke goes on to say this, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. What a moment this was. Matthew records that along with the palm branches, they laid their cloaks on the road as they shouted. Now, a cloak, well, the closest thing we would have to a cloak would be our outer coat, our, our, our winter coat, a spring coat, something like that. A cloak looks like a cape. Sometimes you'll see somebody in really dressy tuxedo kind of garb, and instead of having an overcoat, they will actually have a cape. It might be satin lined or something, have it pulled around them. It's, it's to protect them from the elements. And so that was what a cloak was like. And if you were traveling and, and you had to take your rest uh, for the evening on the side of the road, you would use that cloak as a blanket. And so it was a really important piece of... Uh, uh, that you owned. I mean, it was, you, you probably only owned one. Most people, if they had a cloak, only had one, they couldn't go out and afford to buy another one. And so 
Matthew records that they cut the palm branches and they laid their cloaks on the road and they shouted, Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna means save now. Save us now. On Palm Sunday, five-year-old Stephanie was sitting on the lap of her mother while the preacher was going on about Palm Sunday and he got to the point where he said, and the people shouted, Hosanna to the son of David, Hosanna in the highest. And little Stephanie got so caught up in the sermon that she just burst out into song, Oh, Hosanna, now don't you cry for me. <laughs> but cry he did. He wept over Jerusalem. And then in the garden, he wept over our sins that would take him to the cross. There were a lot of tears that week, but on this day, on this day, he was king in the hearts of his people. What is he to you? this morning what is Jesus in your soul your mind your heart is he a historical figure perhaps a wise prophet maybe a marvelous teacher well he's just a good guy uh -huh. now remember that's the one you can't say if he isn't who he claimed to be the king of kings then He's not a good man. He is history's greatest fraud. And if he's history's greatest fraud, he's not a good man. You see, this week isn't just about remembering who he was and who he is in our own personal lives. It's about renewing your devotion and your commitment to him. And so I want to ask you this morning, what are the palm branches of your lives that you're laying down before him? And have you ever considered the fact that once you laid down a coat or a cloak on the road, that after a donkey walks on it, it might not be worth as much as it was beforehand. And what about this? You know, given the fact that most people only owned one, and there was no chance of getting a new one, if you laid it down in the midst of a crowd like that, and after Jesus goes by and there's a throng to get all their coats and cloaks, you're, you've got no guarantee you're going to get your cloak back. Would you have laid it down if you knew all of that? Some of you say, well, yeah, sure, I'd have, I'd have laid it down. I'd have put my coat down. Really? Then what are you putting down for him now? What are you sacrificing for him now? What are you giving up in your life for him now that shows the same devotion and commitment? And, and these folks, these, they had no idea how the story was going to come together. They had no idea what the week would bring. Now, we've got the whole picture. That's the neat thing for us is that we see Palm Sunday and we see Good Friday and we see the empty tomb on Sunday. We know how all the pieces of the puzzle come together to make this grand and glorious picture. And so for us, the commitment ought to be deeper because we know what God did that only he could do for us. And yet I got to tell you, I'm not sure our sacrifice equals those on the road leading up to Jerusalem. This is our 50th year celebration, and it calls forth sacrifice on our parts. We've talked about sacrifice and prayer, and I'm thrilled that some of you have just latched onto that, and you've increased your prayer time and your prayer life, and you're leaning on God and depending upon God. And this evening, by the way, at 5 o'clock uh, in the fellowship hall, we're going to have our first of, of several prayer services throughout the rest of this year. And that's what it's going to be. We're going to sing some prayer songs, and then we're going to spend some time praying. It will be a variety, but we're going to meet for about 45 minutes. You're welcome to come and be a part of that 
celebration of prayer tonight. And some of you have stepped up in your areas of service and you're, you're planning other ways that you can serve throughout this year so that we can do these, these hours of prayer and service. But it's also important to talk about laying our coats in the road. Now, I, I must tell you, ever since I shared that dream back in December in my sermon that we would, by the end of the year, give $5 million that would not only pay off our indebtedness but would leave us with about $700,000 to spend on kingdom work, either in this community or someplace around the world, that we, we could do something significant with what was left over after we paid off our indebtedness. I've, ever since I shared that dream, I was dreaming out loud, people. I was talking out loud. Ever since then, I've been scared to death. I've just been unnerved. I'm, I, I keep thinking, what was, I've asked myself dozens of times, what were you thinking, Ellsworth, when you said that? We can't do this. In this time of recession and financial difficulties and upheaval, we can't do this. And the truth of the matter is, we can't do this. But the King of Kings can enable us a victory if we will lay our coats and cloaks in the road before him. Some of you already latched onto this dream. You've already made sacrifices. Some of, to date, about $156,000 has been given since I mentioned this idea. Now, we talked about the fact that if we could get 1,000 units and each unit being $5,000, that uh, um, we, could, we could have the 5 million, we could go for it. And so $156,000, it's already been paid on the indebtedness. That represents about 31 units, so we've got a ways to go. But you said, but you haven't given us any plan. You haven't told us any details, and you're exactly right, which is what I'm going to tell you now. So here's kind of the plan uh, for the rest of the year. I'm hopeful by the end of May to be able to share with you what a, a band of leadership, people who are leading in this congregation, what they are committed and devoted to giving uh, in, in this whole project. And hopefully that will be an encouragement for you to know that leadership is behind this. And then through the summer, I want us all to pray about what we're gonna do and participate and how God is gonna work in our lives and, and, and make this happen. And, and then come September, we'll make our, our pledges. And then come December, which is the actual anniversary date of our 50th year, we'll celebrate God's victory. Now, some of you have asked some questions. Uh, I may not be able to give all I want this year. C can I make a two or three year pledge? Because I want to participate, but I just can't do it all this year, but I want to participate. Yes. It will take us longer to pay off the debt, and it will take us a little bit longer to do something significant in the kingdom with that money, but it moves us toward the goal, and getting toward the goal is the most important thing. So yes, if that helps, we can do pledges. Some have said, well, I don't have cash. Um, is there another way I can give? Uh, sure. Uh, there may be things you could sell or have property to donate or stocks to donate or some other creative ideas that you can use. Now, I'm not the guy to explain all that to you. I'm not the guy to give you those kinds of ideas. There are others in the congregation that can help with donation of property or stocks or those kinds of things, and we'll be glad to make that information available to you. I'm just telling you, it, you can be creative with this. And then sometimes the questions have come, well, I don't want to wait. I, I want to make a pledge right now. And that's fine. If you want to make a pledge right now, if you think today or next week or next month or you want to do something, and we've got some these green envelopes that just mark the 50th year anniversary. If you've got a gift you want to go ahead and give now, go ahead and put it in that green envelope. You can get them out at the Welcome Center, and you can get them at the kiosk and, and the information area that has all the 50th year celebration stuff. Just go ahead and do that if that's what God is leading you to do. I just know this, that God wants us to lay our coats, this protection, this 
trust before him and say, Lord, use me and help me to be sacrificial with you. After that triumphant Palm Sunday, when the people had honored Jesus with their praise, Jesus in turn honored his promise with a sacrifice. You know the story well. Pontius Pilate, Roman governor, couldn't find a way to compromise to keep Jesus alive, and so he washes his hands of the whole thing and condemns him to the cross, and John writes it like this. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus, carrying his own cross. He went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha, and here they crucified him with him and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. What radical sacrifice. I mean, you and I cannot even begin to fathom the horrors of crucifixion. It was not until four centuries later, folks, that the cross actually became a symbol of the faith. And as C.S. Lewis points out, he says, the crucifixion did not become common in art until all who had seen a real one had died off. For us, it is a symbol of the faith. For those early believers, it was the worst picture possible. There had been a mock trial, an insufferable scourging that killed most, and then a crucifixion that brought utter darkness during the highlight moment of the day when it should have been its brightest. Here was a man in the midst of his greatest agony who extended compassion to his mother and to a thief that died next to him. There was an earthquake that shook the landscape, split rocks and opened tombs, and tore the great curtain in the temple from top to bottom. There has never been a more radical death than this one. And one of my favorite pictures is this of the temple. You know, the times of sacrifice, the hours of sacrifice at the temple were from 9 o'clock in the morning to 3 o'clock in the afternoon, the very hours that Jesus was on the cross as our ultimate sacrifice. And at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, the priest would take vats of water, the sacrifices being done, and they would wash the floor of the temple where the sacrifices had been. And through these drain ports that came out in the side of the hill upon which the temple sat, you could see at 3 o'clock in the afternoon blood and water flowing out of those drain pipes at the very same time that a Roman soldier took a spear and pierced the side of Jesus, and blood and water comes flowing out from the wound in his body. No detail was overlooked as God painted this extraordinary picture of radical sacrifice. Nothing else like it in all of history. So what does this last week in the life of Jesus teach each of us? Let let me give you three real quick lessons. It teaches us that God understands life's injustices. A careful look at the evidence shows us that Jesus should not have died. There was no moral or legal justification for his death. It just trumped up charges. This man who had devoted his life to doing good to others and proclaiming salvation was put to death. It wasn't fair. It was totally unjust. And I know you feel sometimes that life isn't fair, and it's not fair in this world. And so the next time you want to shake your fist at heaven and say, God, it isn't fair, then listen real closely because you might hear him whisper, I know, I know. No death was ever more unfair than the death of Jesus Christ. And the impact of that week is timeless. Through 20 centuries 
We have been as closely tied in to those moments as the people who stood out on the road and shouted his entrance and to those who stood beneath the cross and mourned his death. You see, what Jesus did at the cross we could not do for ourselves and power was overwhelmed by the force of his love. Philip Yancey wrote, he said, power, no matter how well-intentioned, tends to cause suffering. But love, being vulnerable, absorbs it. In a point of convergence on a hill called Calvary, God renounced the one for the sake of the other. The balance of power shifted more than slightly that day on Calvary because of who it was that absorbed the evil. My sin became his. He took my sin and absorbed it. And that's as real and relevant right now as it was had we stood on the road as he entered the city. Here's something else we learned from that last week, and that is simply this. His death changes everything. I haven't counted lately, um, but I know I've done a few hundred funerals in my years of ministry. And I thought when I first started into ministry that by the time I reached this ancient age, that funerals would have become easy to do. They would just become a piece of cake. And can I tell you this morning that they are as hard, if not harder for me to do than they've ever been. I don't know. There's something about growing older that when I look at people suffering and when I look at death and I, and I look at the brokenness of this world that it makes it more difficult for me to deal with. And I'm not sure how I would cope were it not for the hope that what Jesus accomplished on the cross is greater than the power of death at work in this world. Because of his death, my death has been changed. And because my death has been changed, that changes everything. Has he changed your everything? Because he's Lord of your life this morning. Joseph Bau was a young man in his native Poland. He was an art student at, at the institute there when the Nazis uh, came into Poland at the beginning of World War II. And he and his family were forced to move to the Jewish ghetto there in Krakow and then later to the Poshuv concentration camp. Now, because of Joseph's partial education in art and because of his talent for Gothic lettering, the, uh, the Nazis there in the camp employed him in producing maps and signs for the camp. In the process, Joseph's job also enabled him to save more than 400 Jewish prisoners by forging false documents and identity papers that secured their freedom and liberty as they got out of the camp. Joseph himself was fortunate to survive the war. And years later, he was asked the question, you know, with your ability to forge all these papers, why didn't you forge papers for your own release? And his answer was this. Well, then who would have done it for the other Jews? On the cross, a similar accusation was hurled at Jesus. He saved others. He can't save himself. That wasn't true, of course, and though he didn't answer, Jesus might well have responded to that. Well, then who would save everyone else? Because he knew if he didn't do it, there was no other way. You and I have the hope of everlasting life. We can look beyond the grave because of the death of Jesus Christ. That's radical sacrifice. So I'm asking you this morning, what will you do? And how will you live to be known and remembered as a radically sacrificial follower 
of Jesus Christ. If he's not your Savior this morning, he needs to be.